Welcome to another episode of Conversation with the Experts. Whilst our setting is a tertiary paediatric hospital, our experiences and challenges are shared by many professionals and students in other clinical environments. I would like to acknowledge the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations as the traditional owners and custodians of the land from which we provide our services. We pay our respect to the ancestors, elders and emerging leaders of the Kulin Nations and extend our respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians accessing our resources. Hi, my name's Imogen Boyle. I'm a project officer with the Education Hub at the Royal Children's Hospital and a trans woman, and my pronouns are she, her. So with me today is Hannah Nichols, a radiographer at St Vincent's Hospital in Fitzroy. Hi, Imogen. Thanks for having me here today. And by the way, the pronouns are I use are she, her. Thanks, Hannah. Today we're going to be talking about medicine as it relates to the LGBTQIA plus community. Now, some people have a bit of trouble with that acronym, so I thought we could just go through what each letter stands for and perhaps give a quick explanation. So did you want to start with the first letter, Hannah? Yeah, uh, the first letter being L stands for lesbian refers to two women in a same-sex partnership. Yep. The second word is letter is G, which stands for gay. Gay often stands for men who are attracted to other men, but can also be a sort of umbrella term that refers to people who are attracted to people of the same sex. B stands for bisexual, which refers to people who are attracted to their same gender as well as other genders. And then there's T which stands for trans. Trans is a sort of umbrella term which refers to people whose gender identity doesn't match up with the gender identity that was assigned to them at birth. Q is for queer and sometimes it's for questioning, but we'll start with queer. Queer is also um, an umbrella term that refers to many people um, within the acronym it also is a term that has been reclaimed. It was previously used as a slur and it is something that the community has been working to reclaim and, and take away those negative connotations. Questioning is for people who just aren't sure. They're trying to figure themselves out whether they fit into one of the other letters or if there's a letter that they're yet to find. And then there's I. I stands for intersex, uh, which describes people who are born with one of a number of, uh, they're described as medical conditions, uh, which means their bodies don't fit into the traditional understanding of what's expected to be male or female. A is for asexual, which reflects people who don't view sex and romance in the traditional ways that we've um, perhaps been brought up to experience. Okay, great. Thank you. So this podcast is called Conversation with the Experts, and I think that's a complicated word for many people in the queer community. We might have different feelings about the word expert. So Hannah, you've spoken in the past about having felt called on at St. Vincent's to be, inverted commas, the expert on LGBTQIA plus matters. Can you talk about how that felt and maybe how you found the knowledge you needed to fill that role of being an expert? Yes. So the way that this all started for me was um, I didn't really realise much about my own sexuality until later in life. 
And at that point, I had been working at St. Vincent's for a number of years. And so I found myself changing the way that I spoke about my dating life at work because I was really privileged to be working with a number of people that I consider really close friends. So it was very common that myself and others would talk about dating lives and they were used to hearing me talk about men. And I realized that it wasn't just men that I was interested in dating anymore. And so I decided to tell my colleagues, um, which is, you know, coming out to friends and family is one thing, but coming out at work is a whole other experience. I knew, well, I felt that it would be a really safe space for me to do it, knowing that I worked with such amazing people. Um, But then I had the privilege of, you know, hindsight and looking back, I realized that there wasn't much to identify that space as a safe one for people who um, are queer. You know, there wasn't even a rainbow anywhere that I could see. So, you know, I thought how lucky I was that I knew it was safe, but I figured that people who were starting there fresh might not know that. And especially being a Catholic institution, you know, it's hard to know what the perspective is going to be. So I decided that I wanted to try and make some changes happen to try and improve visibility and to make it clear that it is a safe space so that when a new person starts, they know from the get-go that it is safe for them to be their authentic selves, however that may appear. I looked in all sorts of places, community websites. I also tried looking at um, scientific literature, which became a bit messy. I tried to start with the basics and I wanted to make sure that I had at least a decent understanding of sex and gender and the acronym and, and what it means, a little bit about gay history in Australia. Once I'd collected my thoughts, which was a bit tricky because it's, it's a bit muddy out there when you're looking through everything and trying to filter through and trying to understand. This was a community that was, I was now a part of suddenly. So I wanted to understand it for me and I wanted to understand it to try and elicit this change that I was looking for. And so from there, I shared what I had learned with my colleagues and focused a bit on trying to change language and improve visibility and with the language particularly so that we were effectively catering for trans and gender diverse patients, colleagues, everyone to make it more inclusive. So the, the term expert for me is, is strange because I, at least at the time, was the first openly gay radiographer that we have at St Vincent's of a staff of about 70. And I was the only one talking about these things and I was the only one sharing lived experiences. So whilst I might be an expert to the rest of the group, when I compare myself to the queer community, I feel like a little baby still, like, you know, experts, a very strong word. I can see how, you know, to some groups I would be considered an expert. Yeah. It's a pretty quick change having to go from not being a member of a community to, to having to advocate for that community or being in a position where you have to advocate for that community and having to be knowledgeable about 
that community and what's right for our community. It sounds very challenging. Was it, was it difficult? It was a little bit, but I think when I first started speaking about it at work, I knew that the base level of knowledge was really quite low. So it sort of felt like there was so much to gain, even with sharing a small amount of information that I didn't feel like I needed to be an expert, certainly to begin with. I just needed to share what I had learned. And and that was the real um, perspective that I tried to bring in. You know, I said, this is something that I am still learning about now. This is a community I'm newly part of. And I want to share with you what I've learned so far. And, you know, let's try and have some conversations about what else we might need to learn about. Right. And you talked about uh, looking at community websites, but also looking at, I guess, more official kind of government websites. Did you find more information or more valuable information from any of those particular areas? I, I think that the more community-based organisations were easier to understand and to follow. And I think that that was a really great place to start because when you start looking at formal research and journal articles, those sorts of things, it can be quite overwhelming, particularly if they're doing a lot of statistical analysis or things like that. So I think if you want to get a really nice foundational understanding that the community websites are a really great place to be. Yeah, I think there's something very important about recognising the kind of subjective experience that, that the community can provide. Did you find that quite valuable? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, the subjective experience really helped me to shape and understand or try to understand some of the challenges that are unique to the different groups within the queer space you know, the lived experience is is something that we can learn the most from. So talking to people, you know, some websites have little interviews or clips or quotes and that really helped me to understand the importance of of gaining a good understanding and why it's important to do some work in this space. Mm. I think it's I think it's hugely important, and that that thing of the the queer perspective on our own on our own needs, on our own health, on our own experiences. That's really important to have kind of involved in in any decisions that are made for us. So, you've been instrumental in setting up new practices in your workplace. Do you have a sense of how organisations can draw on that community expertise? to create welcoming spaces for LGBTQIA plus staff as well as patients? Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the first things that you can do within an organisation is to promote the visibility. So like I mentioned earlier, there wasn't even a rainbow flag for me to see. So having those around, having imagery that depicts all sorts of people using inclusive language as well and just, you know, really starting at that sort of simple, simple level. I bought some stickers that I encouraged my colleagues to put onto their name badges. So there was pride flags, Indigenous flags and pronoun stickers. And I said, you know, you're welcome to use these. I've purchased them to share with you all. You don't have to. 
And I also encourage people to put their pronouns on their email signature if they're comfortable with that. Again, just creating that visibility and then hopefully indicating that, you know, it is a safe space to share that information with other people. So starting at those really, really small things, as well as creating, whether it's support groups or working groups even to guide on policy, ultimately organisations need to create space and time for the queer community to come together to be able to reflect our needs and to advise the organisation on how they can improve our experiences. Yeah, it's often those, those small things that are really important. Like for someone who's perhaps not out of the closet, seeing people with a rainbow lanyard or, you know, a pronoun sticker on their, on their badge or in their, their email signature, it does a lot to create a welcoming space to say, you know, we might not see you yet, but we are open to seeing you. I think that stuff can be really important. And so we've talked about how organisations can support queer people in openly being themselves. And I don't want to undermine the importance of that because I think organisations do bear a really big responsibility for it. But listeners might be wondering what they can do to support members of LGBTQIA plus communities in their own lives, or basically to be better allies. What do you think it means to be an ally? Part of being an ally is First of all, having a level of understanding and accepting the knowledge that is out there. So whether that is something that you do yourself, whether you start looking online at different websites and and gaining that information yourself, or whether it's speaking to someone from the community who is happy to speak to this sort of thing, because it's not fair to just think that, you know, because someone might be gay, that they are happy to you know, take on the responsibility of educating you in this space. It's, you know, it's, it's been a complicated relationship for a lot of people, their sexuality and their identities. So it's, it is a very personal thing and you can't just assume that because someone is gay that, you know, they have a responsibility to educate you. So if you've got someone in your life that you can ask about it and they're happy to speak about it, they are a wealth of information and you should definitely, um, start having a chat with them. But yeah, once you've got a bit of an understanding of, you know, what the different terms mean, a bit of history and and some of the challenges that are faced by the queer community, uh, then you can start improving visibility as well. Including pronouns on things isn't just something for the queer community, it's for allies as well. Use of rainbows, use of inclusive language, making sure that the space that you're working in that someone can walk into and immediately see themselves represented and just know that it is okay to be their authentic selves there. Yeah, great. I really do think education is such an important part of welcoming LGBTQIA plus people. And it's, I think, a bit difficult because I think often, you know, we think about education just as knowing facts. But, but I think there is, a, there is a level of kind of rethinking things that's actually often necessary where people might need to kind of re-examine some of their kind of basic assumptions about gender and sexuality. And that stuff's hard, but it does lead to 
you know, a more open experience, a more welcoming experience. So I guess to flip the page on that, you know, it can often be difficult, I think, for cisgender and heterosexual people to feel safe asking questions of, you know, queer people in their lives. There can maybe be a bit of resistance. And the fact is that, you know, just because people are queer, it doesn't mean that they have a responsibility to do it, the education. It's kind of a bit of a bind. What I'm interested in is how can, as members of the LGBTQIA plus community, how can we create spaces where it's possible to have safe and open conversations to build literacy for people who aren't part of the community uh, where they feel comfortable asking questions? I think... In the workplace, it's a fairly easy way to go about it. So what I've been doing with giving presentations within my workplace and outside of it within the radiography community more broadly is, you know, I'm talking about it. I'm talking about my own experience and I say that I am happy to continue these conversations or if people have questions that they can ask me and that I'm I'm really happy to help them understand or if it's something that I don't know then I also you know will help them to find the answer while I find it myself at St Vincent's we also have a pride network as well through that we're developing pride champions what that means is that I and others who are signing up to be one are someone that you can ask questions of so having put forward representatives who are deliberately there for people to ask questions, I think is a really great way and promoting the visibility of our pride champions. Right. Right. So another thing that's important about allyship is that recognizing sometimes you might have to stand up for members of the LGBTQIA plus community and standing up for someone might mean directly you might have to physically intervene you might be standing beside someone and supporting them as they navigate their journey or you could be behind them and just letting them be themselves and recognizing that they know what's best for them but should they need you you're there to support them yeah great i guess in some ways in many ways begun to kind of fill the role of the expert can you talk about any situations where Maybe someone's come to you to learn from that expertise? Yeah. Um, so we've had uh, a few of our newer staff members who might have missed out on some of my initial talks asking particularly to explain the different letters that we assign to patients who don't fit the binary M for male, F for female. Yeah, when that's happened in the past, some colleagues are happy answering that themselves and then others say, I think it's this, but Hannah is actually the person to ask. She knows the most about this and it's something that I'm more than happy to help with. Fantastic. Also through me giving the presentations to the wider radiography community, someone linked me up with one of the lecturers at Monash University. He approached me because he had been wanting to do some work in the space surrounding transgender and non-binary people and, you know, how we can, you know, practice in an inclusive fashion. But he is a cis male and he felt like it wasn't 
fair for that to be coming from him and he wanted the support of an expert to be able to to present this information to the students. Yeah, fantastic. I also mentioned earlier the the kind of difficulty of changing assumptions when when you educate yourself. You've talked about incorporating some questions around radiation and and pregnancy that I think might need a re-examination of how people understand gender. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, so I started to look at gender and radiation safety and previously we used to just ask anyone who was female or female presenting under the age of 55 about pregnancy. But as we know, that's not the only kind of person who has the capacity to be pregnant. Just because you appear a certain way, it doesn't mean that you have childbearing capabilities. And it's a question that's medically relevant for us because we can't just irradiate someone who might be pregnant. There's, there's, processes to follow. We've changed our pregnancy poster. We've updated it to be more inclusive. It's got a pride flag. It's got a trans flag on it. And it also has images of a really diverse appearing group of people. And the intention is that it lets people who may be in the closet or not, you know, wanting to disclose a whole heap of personal information, it lets them know that it's a safe space to disclose that information to us and it's something that we're asking because it's medically relevant. Through that, we've also tried to change the language where we ask if pregnancy could be relevant to your body at this point in time and preface it with, I'm asking this because we're using radiation. (laughs) And finally, we've... um, managed to get the support of some policy as well. So it can be intimidating when you first ask someone who appears to be a 45-year-old male if pregnancy is relevant to their body at this time. But what the policy does is it means that we have support from our managers to ask that question. And, you know, if there is backlash, then we have someone to defer them to and we've got the support and the knowledge that we are doing the right thing by mm. any potential pregnancies that someone may have. That's great. I think that's all we've got time for today. Thanks very much for joining me, Hannah. Thank you so much, Imogen. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to Conversation with the Experts, part of the Royal Children's Hospital Education Hub podcast series. If you'd like to hear more of our podcasts, check out our other podcast channel, Teach, Think, Treat, where we discuss aspects related to teaching and learning in a busy clinical setting. 